Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Glory be to God. All right, we're getting into the teaching of today. I want to start with a brief commentary. I think I'll call it that, of Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 to 40. You see, this is one of the stories in the Bible that I'm so grateful that it was recorded because it puts a lot of perspective to real life and current issues, especially as it pertains to Bible interpretation. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. Hallelujah. So Matthew chapter 22, from verse 35 to 40. I want to start by telling you a true life story. So years ago, I went with a driver to buy an equipment for church. <laughs> we have history. <laughs> you know, I told you that during midweek service. Went to buy a drum set in Alaba. And as we're on our way back, this was how many years ago? This was, I think, 2015 or so, 16 maybe. As we're on our way back, we needed to make a U-turn, and we took a U-turn somewhere. And Lasma stopped us. For our international audience, Lasma just is our traffic offense officer, officers. Is that, that's what they are, right? Uh-huh. Traffic offenders officer, right? That's what they are. You get the point. <laughs> you know, and they stopped us. And they said, you took an illegal turning. I don't like people who try to play on my intelligence. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm a man of God, the true Christian by the grace of God. So I, I won't consciously take, make a wrong U-turn. I said, how? And they said, well, everyone who passes this road knows that this is U-turn. I said, I'm passing for the first time. I said, where is the sign that says illegal U-turn? They said, well, the sign was there four months ago, but it was removed by tout. I said, so how is that my business? They said, you must stop. And of course, I know what they wanted. I said, let's go to your station. I, I took pictures. Oh, my God. You don't want to encounter me when I have time. <laughs> I said, we will go. So after a few minutes, they will now say, ah, what is it, self? Try to understand. I said, let's go. I'm wrong. Let's go. They said, if you go to that station, you will pay 30000 I opened my bag. I said, see, I will pay that money today. Let's go. I carried my phone, called the lawyer. Sir, are you, are you free? Where are you? Please, come and meet me at so-and-so place. When we got to the bus stop, they said, please drop here. Stop, drop us here. And I just felt sorry for them because they had to walk back under the sun. They said, can you drop us back? I said, no. I'm going somewhere. You are the one. <laughs> and that incident, amongst many others, confirmed something I had already known. You see, many of these people are not after compliance. Unfortunately, they weaponize the law for their own private good, you know, just to extort money. 
Some of you know what I'm saying, don't you? Not some of you. All of you know what I'm saying. Have you seen an enforcement agent lawfully extort you? Just by his crooked interpretation of the law. Have you seen people trying to catch traffic offenders and in doing so, cause more traffic? Because at the end of the day, what they are really after is not the free, free flow of traffic. That's not what they are after. Some of them are just power drunk and, you know, and all of that. And so, many of them have missed the essence of the law. The essence. Essence is very important. When the essence of the law is forgotten, the law will cause more harm than good. The essence must be understood. The essence of traffic, traffic laws is free, free flow of traffic. That's the essence, isn't it? So when 2 a.m., the person in charge of the traffic lights forgets to put it off, and the road is absolutely free, and the traffic, traffic light says, stop. Have you experienced that before? And you're wondering, like, this is senseless. Who am I stopping for? Essence. And I'm not telling you what to do in such a scenario. I'm just painting a scenario. Or, God forbid, someone, you know, close to home is injured. You need to rush the person to the hospital. And then the traffic warden says, stop. And you cannot stop. And you try to wound, wound down to explain to the person and say, I need to get to the hospital. And then the person says, the traffic rule says stop. Now, will the person be right legally? Yeah, because, I mean, red says stop. But the person might have missed the essence. What I'm trying to explain to you is that laws are not plug and play. Laws must be subject to interpretation. And that's why we have lawyers. Come on, are you with me? That's why we have lawyers because everything that happens must be interpreted based on context. Based on context. Interestingly, in the Bible, the Jews had lawyers too. And there were not people who studied law. Their field was very specific. There were people who were experts in the understanding of the law. Experts in the understanding of the Old Testament, or at least they were expected to be experts. And that's where this conversation begins. Are you in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35? The Bible says, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So now this was a legal question based on the law. The law given to the Jews. Which is the great commandment of the law? Now when you think of the first ten commandments. Thou shall have no other God besides me. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not stay in and all of those things. Observe the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And all of that. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. 
You're wondering, okay, which one is great? Which one is he going to mention? But Jesus' answer was very instructive. Not only does it teach us on Bible interpretation, it teaches us the lens through which we must see the law as a whole. Instead of Jesus picking one as the great commandment of the Lord, do you know what he says? The Bible says in verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you will see that the first five can be summarized with loving God. They all concerned love, the love for God and your devotion to God. The next five were concerned with how you treat your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Don't kill. Don't steal. They were concerned with your neighbor. And so instead of Jesus telling you which one of them was the greatest, he replied with the essence. Come on, are you with me? Because he was trying to tell you that the essence of the law is in and of itself the greatest law. This is important because now this is the word made flesh teaching us how to interpret the word. And he's telling us this. You must never forget the essence. The height of the understanding of the law is to understand its essence. To understand its essence. If you stop a car as a traffic warden and you see that it's a husband driving his wife at the back is in labor. The sensible thing to do is to let the man go, go to the hospital. Come on, are you with me? And some laws make provisions for things like this and, and those things are stated categorically, but it's not always the case. And so in some cases, you have to use your gumption, understanding the essence of the law and not just the law. But because the Jews did not understand this, they weaponized the law. Have you seen people who look at the law and try to cut corners around it in such a way that the very thing that the law is meant to avoid, they now do it within legal para parameters? Come on, do you understand what I'm saying? This is important, and so this is why we need to talk about this Bible interpretation. Anyway, to go ahead, what is the essence of the law? Let's talk about this. The essence of the law is hinged on four things. The essence of the law is hinged on four things. Number one, worship. Number one is worship. Oh, it might surprise you to know that it's not hinged on compliance per se, but on worship. And so in Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, I quoted this during the midweek service. God told the children of Israel, you've seen how I brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. How I brought you out of Egypt on the wings of eagles. It says, now therefore, if you will obey my commandments, I will make you a peculiar treasure in the earth for all the earth is mine. Meaning, God is saying, 
I've initiated a relationship. I've proven to you my care. I've proven to you my love. I want you to reciprocate so that you can be my people. Following salvation should be discipleship. I explained on, on Wednesday that that was a pattern of how salvation will happen. Before God requires compliance, he first saves. So, moral excellence is the result of salvation, not the prerequisite for salvation. He saved them first before he told them how to act. Come on, are you with me? So this is very important. So now, God is saying, in response to my great deliverance, obey my law, not for the sake of compliance, but for worship. Recognize me as God because I am. Hallelujah. The second essence of the law was the revelation of Christ. Can you say the revelation of Christ? The way I like to explain this is this. I remember the emotions I felt as a child when I saw an actor in real life. And that actor always acted wicked roles. When I saw him in real life, I felt resentment welling up in my spirit, almost, you know. And then I remembered, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. He was just acting. And sometimes you want to say, eh, well, how did he act it so well? He must be like that in real life. Have you ever felt that way? That, you know, you, you have acted about blood money so much, there's no way <laughs> you have not done it before. And so actors tell true life stories of people confronting them in the market or in different places. You are wicked. See what you did to that woman. And you're like, no, it's just a movie. <laughs> God used Old Testament practice to tell in stories what Christ will do. And just the same way, real guns, even if they are used in movies, they are not shot in movies. You don't shoot at someone. You act it. You use CGI effects to imitate how it happens in real life. The occurrences in the Old Testament were but a type and shadow of the real experience that God was going to do in his Christ. So listen, every time they slaughtered lambs in the Old Testament, that was meant to prefigure the real lamb of God, which is Christ, giving the real sacrifice, which was his death for us, so that we can be children of God. The blood of bulls and goats never suffice for the blotting of sins. Never. They were just meant to show us what Christ was going to do. If you understand, raise your hand. Thank you very much for that. And so now, Jesus comes on the scene. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, Search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. Meaning, the real essence of the scriptures is to testify of me. Is it on the screen? Read together, one, two, go. They testify of me. 
So the real essence of all the lambs in the Old Testament was so that when you see Jesus, like John the Baptist, you can say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because all those lambs in the Old Testament were just a testament to the true Lamb of God, which is Christ. Amen, somebody. So the first essence of the law is what? The second is what? The third is love. So when Jesus says, the great commandment is love the Lord your God. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor. In verse 40 of Matthew 22, he says, on these two commandments, hang all the law and prophets. On these two commands, hang all the law and prophets. Meaning, even if you have not memorized the law, you can obey them if you know just these two. Love the Lord your God, love people. You cannot go wrong following these two principles. But guess what? If you don't know the overarching desire of God in the giving of the law, in following the law, you will miss what is more important. And this happened to the Jews many times. They just, they just missed the point. So now, the command of the law is this. Obey the Sabbath, keep it holy. No one should go to work on Sundays. And there are so many reasons why that's an important instruction. Or why that was an important instruction. I think I'm going to create more time to teach on that some other time. Sabbath has nothing to do with Sunday or Saturday. Some people are making silly arguments about that. It had nothing to do with that. Sabbath was meant to represent the rest that we have in Christ, a spiritual rest. Come on, are you with me? So listen, God walked six days creating, and on the seventh day he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. God cannot be tired. So what did the rest represent? The first day that man witnessed was a rest day. Come on, are you with me? The first day that man witnessed, when man was created on the sixth day, the seventh day was rest. And that was to prefigure, as Hebrews chapter 4 explains to us, that we are meant to rest in the finished work of God in his Christ. Come on, are you with me? So, when man was born... A garden was already prepared. All he needed for survival was already ready. God already did it. And that was to prefigure the fact that salvation will not be by works. So in that you see the revelation of Christ, but then you also see the love of God. And that mentality is meant to affect our work culture. It's not just about money. At some point we must rest. Our animals must rest. And all of that. But in obeying the Sabbath, many of them missed the point. Such that Jesus could heal a man who was lame for 38 years. And when the Jews saw a man who was lame 38 years walking, instead of them to shout, oh, praise God, how did it happen? I'm so happy for you. Wow, let's rejoice. What was their preoccupation? He's carrying his bag. You're not meant to walk. Now, they stretched beyond limits the definition of walk. So, carrying your bag is work. Have you seen people 
who always did extra with laws. Did you ever have a petty class captain? They say nobody should talk. You just move like this. <laughs> did you ever have a class captain that puts times two? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> times two. What is times two? Am I a noisemaker or not? <laughs> just extra. So now, carrying bag, and listen, it had shot their bowels of compassion. In obeying the law, they became wicked. Come on, are you with me? Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. So now Jesus comes on the scene. God manifests in the flesh. And these people who think they are pleasing God are being rebuked. And he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, For you pay tithe of mint, anise, cumin, and have omitted weightier matters. Can you say weightier matters? Oh my God. So listen, their problem was not lack of compliance, their problem was that they missed the essence. You have omitted weightier matters of the law of judgment, mercy, and faith. So you can comply without faith. You can comply without mercy. You can comply without justice. They thought it was about compliance. He says, these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Meaning, in your administration of the law, there must be mercy, there must be judgment, there must be justice. Because the law was given for order, not for wickedness. So now Jesus tells a story. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus tells a story. In the temple, there is shoe bread that is meant to be eaten only by high priests. But David is almost at the point of death. No food to eat. And the Bible says he entered and ate that bread and was blameless. Because even if there was a law behind it, to keep it for only a category of people for other's sake, it shouldn't be at the expense of the life of someone. Come on, are you with me? This is how love, come on, open Matthew chapter 12. We are studying the interpretation of the law. Let me tell you this. You cannot be a brilliant theologian without this. You can't please God in your theology without this. Because in a sense, even the devil is a theologian. He tries to interpret the scripture even though he tries to twist it all the time. Jump from the pinnacle of the temple for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. This is why interpretation is important. Justice, mercy, faith, those things must guide our interpretation. Put up Matthew chapter 12 from verse 1. The Bible says at that time Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. So they began to break off the heads of the grain and were eating. But some Pharisees saw them, saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to, to them, haven't you read in the scriptures? What David did when his companions were hungry, 
he went into the house of God. And when he and his companions broke the law by eating. Now, Jesus said they did what? Jesus said they did it. They did what? He categorically said they broke the law. Every last man official should hear this sermon. <laughs> so now, if there is an accident and there is a backlog, the traffic has, you know, been built more than usual. Sometimes you ignore the traffic light. And even if it is red, you just ask these people to keep going. Have you experienced that before? That's what I'm saying. Sometimes the essence prevails over the interpretation. Jesus, now, if your Bible is original, what you are reading is in color red. If your Bible is strictly black and white, don't worry. <laughs> but that just tells you that it was said by Jesus. Broke the law by eating and eating the sacred loaves of bread, which only the priests are allowed to eat. It says, haven't you read in the law that Moses, or in the law of Moses, that the priests on duty in the temples may walk on the Sabbath? I tell you, therefore, there is one here greater than the temple. He says, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I will have mercy and not sacrifices. Oh my God. So the point of the sacrifices was to point to mercy. Come on, are you with me? I wish I had enough time to balance this. <laughs> but we will not end here if we need to balance the balance. So this is important in our interpretation. So now, when we come to the subject at hand, we're continuing our discussion on financial stewardship. To answer difficult questions like, should a Christian tithe? Should a Christian tithe? The interpretation must follow all these laws. Worship, the revelation of Christ, love. The fourth one, I said there are four, right? I will put the fourth one this way with a simple phrase. In the beginning. Can you say in the beginning? So for instance, Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question about divorce. The law categorically says we're allowed to divorce our wives. What's your take on it? And Jesus says, haven't you read that from the beginning? God made male and female, blessed them to join together. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, let no man put asunder. He went before the law to the beginning. Because there, there are laws in Genesis that guide our action throughout the Bible. Come on, are you with me? So these are the four ways that Jesus interpreted the scriptures. And we have to talk about it. So when it comes to 
tithe in, what should we understand? Number one, the first is generally, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We must deal with the excesses in this teaching. Excesses. Because there are some things that just don't sound right. Especially when you hear people teach about the devourer. And I'm just wondering, do you really believe this? I think that every bad theology stems from a poor understanding of the nature of God. Someone came to me and said, he missed his tithing once, once, once. And because of that, his car caught fire. You'll be surprised there are Christians who think like this. You, I mean, he said he gives tithe all the time, but he just missed once. He said, Pastor, you won't believe what happened. He, I mean, oh my God. God has suffered. We've blamed God for many things Satan did. I said, that's not God. I said, I mean, you know, it irked me so much. That's not God. Do you realize there's a devil also? And sometimes your poor theology will affect your faith and empower Satan, giving him, a, giving him room to do some things in your life. Because somehow you feel, oh, now, oh, my God. Now the room, the door is open. So I don't know how some people picture it. Just imagine an angel running to God saying, sir, your daughter Helen, your daughter Helen, there are robbers at her door. And, you know, and God says, what? My girl, go with the angels. Stop them. You know, and all of that. And as they're going, he says, wait, let me check her records. Oh, no. Oh, no. I always tell these children, pay your tithe. <sighs> now we have to stand and watch. This is how many Christians think. And the interesting thing is, I taught this for the first time, I think 2014 or 2015. When I taught this, you know, one lady vowed never to come to our church again. And the person I invited, I said, why? He said, your pastor said, um, if we don't tithe, if we don't tithe, devourer will not divorce. I said, wow, you, you insist on your right to be devoured. Why will you say God will not punish me? God must punish me. <laughs> I said, wow. Religion is bad, though. She was angry. Anyway, she came back. You know, I've told you many times, Celebration Church is hard to replace. Very hard. If you're vexed, it will come back. <laughs> she came back. But, but I was just like, how can you hear a sermon that tells you God loves you so much, his blessing is not predicated on your faithfulness, and you are angry? No, why would you say that? I mean, if I don't tithe, devourer must devour me. You are so determined to be devoured. What about Malachi chapter 3? You know, first and foremost, strictly speaking, none of us has ever given tithe the proper way. 
Malachi 3, I know you know it by heart because they've rammed it into your, your consciousness. Bring it all tithes into my what? Storehouse. That they be, be, did he say bank account? He said what? So he was talking about grains. That there may be what? Meat. He's talking about food. Prove me now herewith if I will not open the windows of heaven for rain. He was talking for crops, right? I will build the devourer. What are the devourers? Locusts. Look at the text we read initially. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, quickly. Matthew 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of what? Now, some of you think mint is new notes. <laughs> you know, this is how some people catch remarks. Ah, no wonder I've not been blessed. I must give new notes. I must pay tight of mint. <laughs> he was actually talking about crops, anise, cumin, they are herbs. So now, that means if we give tithe of money, we believe implicitly that the point is the principle behind it, not the ordinance. Nobody who gives tithe of money has the right to argue that they are faithfully obeying the law. Because it means that we see a principle behind it. So that's important. You cannot make tithing an ordinance in the New Testament. You can't say if you don't tithe, devourer will devour you. Not, don't, listen. Oh my God. Look at Romans chapter 8 very quickly. Thank you, Jesus. Please, are you learning anything? Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Everybody read together loud as you can. One, two, go. Read it again, one to go. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So now, God is telling you, by the free gift of Christ for your salvation, he's telling you there is nothing else he won't freely give. He can't give you salvation for free and then give you financial blessing at a cost. It's not investment. If I must tithe to be blessed, it is not a free gift, it's an investment. Are you with me? And so he says, this is your God. This is your God. He doesn't work for you. He does it because he loves you. And the ultimate proof of that is he gave you his best. There is nothing God can give you bigger than Christ. And so because he gave you Christ for free, he should tell you every other thing. Uh-uh. God who gave me Christ for free. 
then he will require I renew my subscription for him to bless me financially next month. No, that's not true. That's not true. Come on, are you with me? Some have even said, if you don't tithe, you won't make heaven. Listen, that's a lie. It's not true. You're saying, ah, oh, you've not heard it before? Okay. Wow, you guys, you have been receiving good word for long. You are surprised. Ah, you said ah. You really said ah. Oh, just in case you don't know, tithing is not the power of God unto salvation. <laughs> the gospel is. The gospel is. The gospel is. Hallelujah. You have enjoyed the sermon up to this point, right? Answer me now. All right. So, what then does the Bible teach about giving? Oh, my God. What are the four ways I said you interpret the law? The law? Number one was what? All right. So, meaning... From my generosity, it must show the lordship of Christ, the worship of Christ. He delivered me from the kingdom of darkness. My life and all that I have belongs to him. So listen, never forget what tithing represented to the Jews. They were showing God with a tenth that he owned all. With the tenth, they showed God that he owned all. Amen, somebody. Now, that's important. That's essence. 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 Does the Bible teach that? Practically, oh my God. Even though it doesn't categorically say you should give it. And I will tell you why. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 12. What your giving says about you. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12. Everybody read together loud as you can. One, two, go. All right, so number one, when you give, it calls your generosity an administration of service. I wish I had enough time to talk about that. So, he says, number one, it supplies the wants of the saints. Number one. Number two, he says, but is what? Thanksgiving unto God. So, number two is, whether you are conscious of it or not, people will thank God for your generosity. The reason why we could have apostolic visits in Lori at no cost to the people there was because of you. 
for every testimony, every healing, you know, you make it, you know, every time I thank God for the privilege. I was preaching somewhere on Friday. I gave a word, word of knowledge and four people burst in tears. Because it was spot on. Something had happened to a lady. They had been trying to console her. And then a pastor came to the church for the first time and said, the Lord said this, 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 this. Four people started crying. You know, so when you think about the impact and then you just realize you were a part of that. You were a part of that. Are you getting what I'm saying? I'm, I'm a part of something good. Something good. It says people will thank God for you. You know, I remember one time, I got a word, you know, that um, one woman was in trouble. Subconsciously, I don't know why. I just looked at one gift she gave in our parlor. I knelt, I held it and blasted in tongues. It's not, I'm not saying I always do that. But it just, it just came naturally. Do you remember the guy that they came to Jesus to tell? They said, please help him. He built us a synagogue. It's the subconscious response of people to intercede for generous people. It says people will thank God for you. They will thank God for you. Hallelujah. When the angel appeared to Cornelius, he said, your arms and your prayers, I am here on account of your arms and your prayers. God saw what he was doing. So now, this is a service. This is something spiritual. This is not donation. Come on, are you getting this? This is important. So now, he calls it a service. And number two, the needs of people will be met. People will thank God for me. That's not even where it ends. Second Corinthians, Joe. Verse 13 of Second Corinthians 9. Is it on your own screen? Read it loud as you can. One to go. Second Corinthians 9, 13. We read verse 12, right? The administration of your service not only supplies the needs of the saints. Verse 13. It says, well, through the proof of this ministry... They glorify God for what? Oh my God. He says the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying there is no way you will believe in the gospel and it will show in your generosity. He says there is an obedience. Oh my God. There is an obedience that accompanies my confession of the gospel of Christ. So, what do we know about New Testament giving? Number one, it is free will. It's free will giving. <laughs> the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, everyone as he proposes in his heart, let him give. Not grudgingly or out of necessity. Come on, is that clear? New Testament giving must be delightful. Not grudgingly or out of necessity. So if you say you must give this, 
That might be grudgingly. It says, for God loves us to give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Hallelujah. You know, but a lot of people, you know, just camp around this. So now, even if it is free will, God expects us to do it regularly. So, giving in the New Testament is free will. Number two, it is regular. So the fact that it is free will does not mean you give when you like. That some Sundays you say, I'm not feeling like it today. The free will talks about the fact that it must be from your heart. Not the fact that it must not be consistent. You must have times of generosity. And the church is well within its right to determine that. Come on, are you with me? This is very important. And so in texts like, I think, 1 Corinthians 16.1 now, I hope the media team will help me now, since they were eager to show other things. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, Paul talks about collections or generosity being done the first day of the week. The first day of the week. So it can be regular. Don't forget the text we read in 2 Corinthians 9.13. It calls it obedience to the gospel of Christ. Meaning there is still a sense of duty. The fact that it is free will does not mean it, should, it shouldn't be dutiful. And number three. It should be <laughs> sacrificial. It should be what? Let me tell you this. If you hear the teaching that says no devourer will devour you if you don't tithe, and therefore you stop tithing, that whew, I feel relieved. <laughs> You're not being a good Christian. Let me tell you what happened in, in this church. When I first taught this years ago, the givings went up. I'm telling you, I know someone who began to give 40%. Let me tell you, and because I'm a pastor and I love hard, I had to have meetings with some people. And I told them, I see your heart, oh, but I also want you to save. Do you have savings? <laughs> True life story. There was a lady, I'll call her name, Ajoke. My wife and I had to persuade her that, no. Keep some money aside. Do you know how I, I, I convinced her? I said, you like to give, right? Okay, think of it this way. If you invest more, you'll be able to give more in future. Say, ah, okay, okay. Yes. <laughs> because when they saw, God loves me without requirements, without performance on my part. Wow, you mean I should give freely? It didn't reduce their generosity. It increased it. So we were the ones having to say, okay, slow down, slow down. <laughs> slow down. There was someone who bought me something. I said, what about your mom? Have you bought her something? Have you done this? Have you done that? And that's, by the grace of God, the kind of heart we have here. But at the same time, you are also wrong. It is a sin actual sin 
if your generosity does not reflect the extent of the blessing of God on your life. So now, the Bible tells us a powerful story, and that story tells us two things. They were making collections in the synagogue, and Jesus sat and was watching. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus was watching. You know, what we used to do that year, when it's offering time, you just dip your hand, squeeze it, so that the person by your side will not see. And deep inside the basket. Jesus knows how much is in your hand. Every time you give, he watches. The one who blesses you watches how you reciprocate. It's very important you know this. And then when they were done, he gave a commentary. And in, in this, by this commentary, I'm making a case for consistent free will tithing. Hold on. Jesus said, do you know of everybody here, this widow who gave just a mite gave the most? And everyone's like. That's why you'll be wrong to say who the top partner of a church is. You don't know. Because we determine the extent of generosity not by what was given, but by what was left. Did you hear what I said? Uh -huh. So if I have one million, and I give 500,000. And if you have 8 million, and you gave 800,000, I gave more than you. Yes or yes? yes? We will never truly know the top giver in the ministry, except all of you submit your books, <laughs> which we won't require. He said the widow gave the most, because all of you, out of your necess out of your abundance gave, but she Despite her poverty, she gave all her livelihood. Oh my God, so many lessons from this. This means, number one, no matter how limited you are financially, God expects you to practice generosity. Jesus didn't say, why will you allow a poor woman like this give? You know, some people say silly things. See what your pastor is driving and you're asking him to give tithe. That's a carnal mindset. It has nothing to do with your wealth. And by the way, your pastor does not eat your tithe. I'm not a signatory to any church account. I've never been. And I'm not saying this to impress you. We have a serious call here. And we're doing it as unto the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So no, no matter what. Look at the church in Macedonia. Despite their poverty, they were given, and Paul did not say it was wrong. So in my station, I must learn to give. So as your trainer, how do I now train you in generosity knowing this? The percentage idea is a smart idea. With the percentage idea, we can all have a minimum level of generosity. Come on, are you getting what I'm saying? Because 10,000 is much for some people, small for some people. So how do I grow in generosity? By saying... This is the least percentage I will give. So, as a church, we have decided the least of us will give a tenth. And then with our offering, we exceed it. That's the giving structure here. And we do it cheerfully, generously. Not out of necessity. Because it is very 
inappropriate for someone for whom Christ died to only be concerned about if it is a doctrinal requirement to pay tithes. Instead of acting, asking, will it be wrong if I don't? Ask, if I do it, how does that help me and help the church? Because you, you know, you know, you know, you know, if you don't put measures in place for your generosity, you won't be consistent. The average believer will not. Yes or yes. That's why we put structure. When we say every morning we pray 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., you have not asked before that did the Bible say we must pray 6 a.m.? In every aspect of Christian devotion, even if the Bible didn't categorically say, we now put structures in place to help our consistency. The same must apply in generosity. So as a church, we say free will, but consistently we will give a tenth. And so you must now really have to answer the question why you will have an issue with that. If you believe in the, if you subscribe to the Lordship of Christ, and then if you love Christ and His church, I really thank God that this church had been teaching this before this topic became popular in the body of Christ in this nation. Long before. All right? Long before. So it wasn't really about that. You know, but, and then you have to have enough discernment to see that many of the people who brought it up that time were not actually for the benefit of the church. They wanted to defund the church. Yes or yes? <laughs> if you don't know, I'm telling you now. And that's why it should never be a yes or no answer. The real question is, oh my God. Before I was doing this, it helped my devotion. It helped my consistency to know that, listen, I have shown the obedience that accompanies my faith in my finances. I've put my money where my faith is. I've kept mammon in his place through my generosity, not just through prayers. So if before I was doing it just to keep off the devourer, now I will do it from my heart. As just worship and love to the Lord. For God loves a cheerful giver. Any, anybody here too say amen to that? And that's what it's about. And then you now say, look at what the church has been able to do. Oh my God, you don't want a Nigeria with a weak church. I'm telling you. <laughs> Let me just say this. You might not agree with some of the things some of the fathers in the church stand for. But I want to tell you, and I won't say more than this. If they were half as powerful as they are, we will be in trouble. I can't say more than that. You don't know what it means to the body of Christ in this nation when we stamp our foot on the land and you can, you can look at a tabernacle that sits 50,000 people. It's a powerful statement. <laughs> hey, my God. Eh? Hallelujah. Think impact. Send your money on an errand. Put your money where your faith is. And then the same you who is arguing a tenth, when you get into maybe a place with your friends, 
you know, you can say, oh, don't worry, the food is on me. Your money will always flow in the direction of your interest. That's the problem. There is a heart problem. And in all you're doing, protect your heart. I want to make sure that I continuously give to the gospel from my heart and generously not just dipping hand in my pocket and giving what comes out sacrificially my generosity must reflect my love for God his lordship over my finances and my love for his church for the saints I must love my local church. See all the expansions we are doing. You know, there is something that you people do that touches me. Many of you. Well, some of you. Even when we don't call for a gift, when they see we are doing something, some people will just say, you know, sir, I want to be a part of it. Oh my God, I was preaching in Redeemer's University. I gave a word of knowledge. I said, there is someone here, your parents are pastors, and they died recently. And it has affected your faith. Come out. You know, and some of them came out. And then the Lord said, pay their, their school fees. So we put them on a scholarship. When I got home, my sister said, sir, someone in church who watched the live stream said he wants to cover the school fees of one of them. I said, ah, my God. Listen, those are the kind of things that make me feel I'm doing a good job. Because I assure you from the Bible, it doesn't matter. Let your song, if you can sing three parts, only you. <laughs> if it doesn't show in your finances, you still have a long way to go. I will prove it to you even more next week. Come on, are you with me? Do you love Jesus? Are you going to put your money where your faith is? I don't know about you. I love to give. <laughs> I love to give to God. I love to give to his work. Hallelujah. Because how can he have given me so much and I won't respond? All I have comes from him. I worship him not just with my music, but with the way I live and with my money. The Bible says, honor the Lord with your substance. So with my money, I show honor. I show honor. I put my money where my faith is. I show honor. Because if I don't do it, the devil is seeking that place. The devil is seeking that place. The devil is seeking that place. There will be the temptation to build bigger bands. Break this one, build bigger ones. But in the gospel, I have responsibilities. As God has blessed me, I must start thinking, okay, who do I send to school? Who do I do this for? What am I, how am I going to partner with this church? You know, one of you said to me, he said, sir, I want to know how much it costs to plant a branch. You know, that's an audacious thing to ask for Celebration Church. And he said, as the Lord helps me, I will plant one. Hallelujah. Please stand to your feet. I told you two weeks ago when the Bible talks about worship it is all, it's only later that worship referred to music when you hear worship today what comes to your mind is a song 
But the etymology, the biblical etymology of the word worship referred to sacrifice. That you bring something that costs you something. You place it on an altar and you give to the Lord. That's worship. So if we're, we're singing a powerful song now, you will likely respond from your heart, you know, give one thing that you can do. Just because of your love for the Lord is to give to Him. I don't know if you do that. If you don't do that, I want to encourage you, begin to do it. You know, January this year, I told the Lord, I said, you've blessed me so much. You've blessed me so much. I am going to give more this year than I gave last year, at least times three. That's what I told myself. And if you know me well, I don't just give to this church because, you know, you can say hey, you're giving to the church. Somehow, some people think it's all coming back to me. <laughs> I went to preach somewhere in Akure. The Lord said, you won't take a dime from them. Instead, you will give a million. Hi, Jesus. That's why I don't travel my checkbook anymore. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Hallelujah. But I love it. I love to give to God. And when you give and it pains you, it's a good thing. It's a form of circumcision. That, that's, I'm telling you, that's idolatry you're cutting off. That means I had an inordinate relationship with this money. Let, me, let it pain me. I'll cut it. I must continue to put money in his place. Make it If he never choked you, you know. <laughs> Once in a while. That piercing effect, you must feel it at least thrice a year. At least thrice. Kill the flesh. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Hallelujah. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold Lord you are more beautiful than diamond there's nothing I desire compared to you Lord you are Lord you are more Lord Lord you more costly than gold, Lord, Lord, you are more beautiful than that. There's nothing, Lord, you Hallelujah. I want you to sing it from your heart. I want you to sing it from your heart. This is, this is discipleship. One of the ways. Oh my God. Did you ever see a toy called a seesaw in a playground before? 
The only way one side will be up is the other side will be down. There is a seesaw in your heart. Two places. The relationship with, between God and money. You must put one under for the other to be exalted. Are you listening to me? The Bible says you can't serve God and mammon. You must be loyal to one and despise the other. It is one of the ways to grow in your devotion by putting money in its place. More beautiful than that. Boasted your God. There's nothing. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809 996 7000. Blessings.